Amen. One of the effects of sin on our hearts and minds is that we may struggle to believe that the greatest joy and peace in life for us in this world is God Himself. Sin has a dulling effect. It has a desensitizing effect upon our minds. And we need desperately to have our hearts awakened and our spiritual sensibilities stirred by the greatness and glory and righteousness of God. We were made for this To know Him and to behold Him in these ways, thinking on the truths about God and His Word, should draw our hearts, even if only gradually at first, to a sense of reverence and awe, delight and wonder toward God. God is the one for whom and by whom all things are made, and the heavens declare His glory. And the seraphim sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And that the whole earth is full of His glory. When we gather before the Word of God and in dependence on the Spirit of God, we want the Lord to be merciful to the eyes of our hearts. And the way I think that works out is that we would come to truly perceive and delight in the excellencies and glories of God. Because to behold Him in these ways, to understand Him in these ways, has a stabilizing effect on the soul. It has a rooting of our life in solid ground. And we need this kind of stability. Life is very unstable. Very unpredictable. Very uncontrollable. There are distressing circumstances all around us. And it's good for us to read in the Psalms, what shall one who knows God do in distressing circumstances? And we have such Psalms. Psalm 4 helps us this morning because this psalmist knows God. And he is faced with things he cannot overcome by his own power. And so he calls upon the Lord. The psalmist is David. The superscription right above verse 1 says it's a psalm of David. And the reason we know that this psalm is not meant to be just for David in David's own personal individual life is because we're told there that for the choir master and the stringed instruments, here's a psalm of David. This is a psalm to be corporately understood. This is a psalm that in the gathering of the people of God, we would think about the music of hope and life here and be wise accordingly. This psalm, written by David, is one of 37 psalms written by David in book 1. Half the psalms in the whole book of psalms bear his name. Book 1 contains 37 of them. That is the overwhelming majority. So here's one among those 37 from David. And the superscription makes clear that it's to be utilized in an assembly. So here we are today making much of it. When we examine the psalm, the distressing situation seems to be this. There is spiritual idolatry around David. Verses 2 through 5 explain that. We're going to look at those verses and and the phrasing in those verses in just a moment. 
But they talk about people pursuing lies and falsehoods and not offering right sacrifices to the Lord. The psalmist says that needs to stop. Apparently, David is surrounded by spiritual idolatry, but not only that. Verses 6 and 7 suggest there's some kind of economic situation going on. Grain and wine are brought up. And when grain and wine are brought up, these are examples of a fruitful harvest. When the crops and the vineyards are going well, you've got grain and wine. And the whole of the psalm indicates there must be some kind of lack. Some kind of agricultural economic depletion. So this psalm is written with a context where there is spiritual idolatry and economic hardship. And in the ancient world, those two notions were found together a lot. Because if people looked at their lives and said, I would like a fruitful vineyard and field. It was common for them to offer prayers to idols, sacrificing things to images, worshiping at idol temples, all done in the service of the so-called gods who ruled the land and the crops and the rain. This psalm is lament over those realities, but also confidence in the Lord. David's the king of Israel. We have to remember that when he writes this, he writes this as the leader of the nation. He reigned for 40 years as king. About 1010 BC to 970 BC. And during the 40 years of David's reign, he would have seen all manner of social problems, all manner of political challenges and hardships. He would have witnessed the horrors of idolatry and the futility of praying to what's not God. Social and economic pressures can prompt spiritual decisions and pursuits. When people face the scenarios of challenging economies, their responses indicate where their hope is found. Imagine a scenario where gas is expensive. You're really going to have to try here, but I want you to imagine. Where inflation is high and eggs are like bars of gold. Just imagine a situation like this, if you can. I bet you can do it. David's plea is that given what's around him, where there is idolatry and hardship and things he cannot control, he will call upon the Lord. Look in verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. The opening and closing words of that verse, answer me when I call and then hear my prayer. David is calling upon the Lord in prayer and calling upon the Lord to act. Answer me when I call, hear my prayer. I don't think this is David, I don't think having some view of God where David believes I can order God around. You answer me when I'm talking to you kind of thing. Instead, he's calling upon the Lord to respond to the people he has set apart for the sake of his name. Answer me when I call and hear my prayer. Who is God to David? Oh, God of my righteousness. God is the source of. Of everything that is good and true and righteous about David. David knows that what is going right within his life. Pursuits of justice and being vindicated before others. And seeking what is honorable before God. That doesn't happen because David's heart is naturally right before God. It comes because God has done a work in David's life. God is the God of David's righteousness. And I just want you to know this morning, that's not only true for David. 
All that we do that would be seeking the Lord and honoring God and pursuing the Lord. Anything of our lives that would be considered to imitate Christ and righteous before God. He is the source of all that is good and true for us. Justice or righteousness here could be translated vindication. That God would be the God of David's vindication and his righteousness. Some sort of declaration that David would be in the right Though others might have accused him of being in the wrong. And this latter scenario is probably more what's in mind in fact. Because David's in a situation where as king. You might say that the buck stops with him. And that if there are difficulties in the nation. And people are tense and frustrated. Well you can imagine them with their words and their actions. Thinking maybe we just need a new king. Maybe he's displeased the Lord. Maybe he's not leading correctly. And David knows that God is the God of my righteousness. He is looking unto God. He is hoping in God. Praying to God. And here's what he knows. God, I know what you have already done. In verse 1, one of the things that motivates us to pray is that we know in our walk with God how God has shown Himself faithful. David says, you have given me relief when I was in distress already. You know this morning that believers can find themselves in distress. People who know God and walk with God face on this narrow way all manners of different hardship and trials in the Genesis 3 world. The word distress here doesn't mean a little thing has gone wrong. The word distress is a picture of high pressure. And all of us have faced circumstances where we are being pressed into a tight spot. And yet there's no place so distressing that God's grace cannot reach. There's no place so tight where His power cannot come with rescue and grace. He says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. I know what it is already to walk with you, to know you, to pursue you, to pray to you, to be helped and strengthened by you. So therefore, I call upon you in prayer. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. Be gracious. It's the word grace. That's the word tucked in to the term gracious. When David is praying for God to be gracious, he's praying for the Lord to act in a way that David knows I do not deserve David doesn't say, you've given me relief when I was in distress, so Lord, be, be fair toward me. In fact, David knows God has not treated him according to how his sins have deserved. David's life is a testimony of what mercy and grace operating in the life of the sinner can result in. So David, David prays for grace. What does he need? He needs the undeserved help of God. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. One of the reasons David knows he can pray this is because of something written in the early books of the Old Testament. There was this priestly blessing in Numbers chapter 6. The high priest of Israel could pronounce over the people of God a blessing that sounds like this in Numbers 6, 24 and following. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. There's the phrase. And the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. David is praying for God to do what God has so faithfully done for centuries long before there was ever a David. 
God can be trusted because of what God has made known about himself in ways before David was ever born. So when David looks at his own life, he knows he can trust God, not only because of his own personal experience with God, but because of what the word of God says long before David came along. He is shaped by what he knows of God and what he knows God blesses his people according to. We know that this blessing from number six is in view, even with this very subtle phrase, because of later in Psalm four, later in Psalm four, verse six, he says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. So if we were a little curious earlier on in the psalm, could he have number six in mind? It's totally confirmed by the time the psalm is over. He wants the Lord's blessing, the gracious power of God to work. But then in verses two through five. David is recording words here, pinning lyrics, where he is addressing the problem around him by preaching to those, let's say, calling for people to realize around him what they should do differently. Verses 2 to 5 are David's words to others. David's circumstances are not circumstances apart from other people. David's challenging circumstances as king over Israel involves others around him. And in order to understand verse 2, we're going to have to read it in light of verses 2 through 5 as we look at these words to others. O men, he says, or O sons of men. He is calling people to respond with some questions. There are two questions. We might have expected David to continue talking to the Lord, but he says to the people around him, O men, how long will you turn my honor to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And with these two questions and some commands in these verses, he's going to address other people, warn them, plead with them to respond. Two questions. They both begin in verse 2 with how long? Question number 1, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? Question number 2, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The question how long is so that somebody will say in response, here's when this is going to end. How long is a question we ask when we're ready for it to be over. You've been in a car ride with somebody when they ask, how long will it be until we get there? They're ready for what that activity going on is to end. Parents are looking at children and children at parents because you know you've had this conversation recently. How long is a question of bring this activity to an end? How much longer are you going to keep doing this? What they should gain from this, the the question leads to this exhortation. You should stop it now. How much longer are you going to do this? Put an end to it. Respond appropriately now. Quit continuing in the way you're continuing. How much longer are you going to turn my honor to shame and love vain words and seek after lies? Be done with it already. Now David is being opposed. This is where we can understand the other's activities around him. In verse 2, the king's honor is being turned to shame. The king would have an endowed and granted position of anointedness and glory among the people of Israel. He's Israel's king, and that's not a notion to be taken lightly in the land. 
They are to obey the king and honor the king. And yet the accusers, the naysayers around David, are turning his honor into shame. And the reason this is quite serious is because David's not just a normal earthly king. We learn from Psalm 3, verse 3, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. So if they're turning David's glory and honor into shame, this has implications for them spiritually. By trying to turn David's glory to shame, they're opposing the true glory of David, God himself. The honor of David derives, it's not innate within him, it derives from the hand and appointment of God. And so when these people are coming against David, David turns to the God of my righteousness. And he asks these men, how long are you going to try to turn my honor to shame? And seek after lies and love vain words. It's important in that question of verse 2 that he doesn't just say, how long will you speak vain words? Their speech, their activity flows out of their disordered love. They love vain words. They seek after lies. It's not like they're like stumbling into it. How did this happen that I arrived in an idol temple? No, this is something they pursue. Their heart is after it. They love it. They love what they ought not to love. And they seek what they ought not to seek. How long, David says, are you going to continue doing this? Be done with it already. This phrasing is very technical phrasing in the Old Testament. It's phrasing connected to idol worship. In other words, to love vain words would be the empty speech offered in prayer to an idol. You're praying for this God to act. God can't hear you. Why? Because that's not a God. That God can't see you to help you. Why? Because that God has no eyes. He doesn't exist. That God can't move to rescue by some outstretched hand and arm. Why? Because that God has to be positioned and picked up if it falls over. That God is dead. So David says to these people who find distressing circumstances and who are responding by pursuing what is wrong, by seeking after lies, how much longer are you going to do this? How much longer are your vain words going to proceed from your lips? And not only that, but how much longer are you going to seek after lies? Another word there for delusion or falsehood. The idols represent lies. Idolatry is not harmless. Idolatry is deadly because it is false worship. That is clear from the Old and New Testaments. The Bible is not vague on that issue. The worship of the living God is what we have been created for. And the folly of our sinful selves, as Romans 1 tells us, is we've exchanged truth for lies. And we've gone and worshipped what is not God. He says, how much longer are you going to keep this up? Stop it already. Vain words. Seeking after lies. Idols are vain things. That means prayers to them are vain words. And when I'm using the word vain, I mean in the sense of futility. Of what good is idol worship for the worshiper? No good at all. It's vanity. Futility. He says in verse 3, there's something you should know. And maybe this will help you stop 
pursuing these lies with vain words. In verse 3, you should know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Verse 3, this is a strong claim from David. First of all, he himself is this godly one here. But just like earlier when David is confident of the Lord's relief in prior distress and he can call upon the Lord in prayer, it applies to all those set apart by the Lord. This here is true though first and foremost for David. If these people are going to oppose David and seek after idols, here's something they need to know. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has set apart his people. They belong to him. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. In fact, the the last line there is evidence of the first line. The Lord hears when I call to him. That means God is not indifferent to the prayers of his people. He has set us apart. And this language probably goes back not just to Genesis, but also to Exodus, where God sets apart the nation of Israel. They're delivered by the mighty Exodus, right? They're delivered and they go to Sinai. And he has set them apart to be a people under his great name. It's covenant love. A covenant relationship. He has bound himself together with a divine oath and resolve and commitment. God has set apart the godly for himself. And if the people around David are going to seek idols and try to turn David's glory into shame, they are going to oppose the one who's been set apart by God. Verse 3 is true for every person who is in Christ. Through faith in Christ Jesus, we are in a new and lasting covenant. We can say with David, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And he hears when I call to him. Christ has set us apart. We are united to him. And we are those who live for his glory. And who seek to walk in his ways. And internalize his wisdom from his holy word. We have been set apart. The implications of this are profound. Because verse 3 is not true for every individual around us. It is true for those who know God. If these idol worshipers will turn from their vain words and their false worship, they too can come to know the living God. They can pursue what is good and right. They can pursue God Himself. They too can be set apart by God. They too can hope in Him and have confidence in Him. But no false idol ever helped anybody. The living God. This can be David's hope. And if we know God, I want you to hear me, friends. You've never then prayed a vain prayer to Him. Your words are not in vain. Your hope is not futile. You know the living God. If you look at Psalm 4 here and you say, My goodness, David seems quite bold. Quite confident to come before God with this kind of assurance. He's come to know God. To know from the word of God what God is like. To see the ways and works of God. To know his faithfulness. All of this undergirds the confidence of God. You too, friend, can know Christ. You can be set apart for the glory of God. You too can come before the living God with confidence and boldness. And he hears his people. In verse 4, David's words 
to the surrounding folks continue. He says to them, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. The command to be angry means to to tremble in one place without losing control. It means to suppress with this trembling in a way where you might think to break out with your emotions and frustration, but you're not going to sin. Maybe you've been this angry before. I would imagine it's possible for all of us in this room where you were so frustrated. You thought, you know, I'm shaking. I'm so mad. And, and here David is saying to be angry, to, to tremble, if you will, and do not sin. To control what is eager to burst forth and to ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. David recognizes if there are challenging circumstances in the lives of people around him, they will face the temptations of frustration and anger. They're desperate. But David says, don't be foolish. Don't use your frustration with something as an excuse to sin against God and other people. Be angry. Tremble. Do not sin. Be self-controlled. This means, I think, in their setting, several things. It would certainly mean when he says, do not sin, stop turning to idols. Stop hoping in what will not help you. Stop worshiping and valuing above all what can't see and hear your prayers. So this would first of all mean by application, stop turning to what's not God. They've been giving vain words and prayers to idols. David says, that needs to stop. How much longer are you going to do this, by the way? And then he says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So don't go to those temples. Stay in your bed instead. Stop praying vain words. Be silent. I think he's telling them that in their frustration, in their bewilderment, don't turn to what's not God. Sin not. He's urging them, I think, in other words, to turn from their present course. We would call that repentance. I think this is another way of saying from David to them, you need to repent. Stop doing what is wicked. Stop with your words and actions what displeases God. Be self-controlled. They should stop doing They should ponder in their own hearts on their own beds. He's really telling them to get alone with themselves and think. We live in a very noisy world. I don't know if you've noticed. Lots of streaming services and iPhone capabilities and screens galore everywhere we turn, wherever we go. And when we live in such a noisy world, we realize the challenge of walking thoughtfully with God. And to walk and live slowly before the Lord and His Word to meditate And to be planted by streams of water like the Psalm 1 man. And I wonder this morning when he says to stay on your bed and ponder in your heart. If we realize that sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do for our own good is to get alone with what we know of God and his word. And to think about our life and what we are doing. Because David wants them to ask those, answer those questions. How much longer? And maybe they're just coasting through life in such a way that they're not even considering what they're doing anymore. They're just so used to speaking in certain ways and going to certain places and performing certain habits that they haven't stopped to ask, 
Is it time that I actually stop this? Is it time actually that this is an issue I should recognize, I should repent of? And David says you need to get on your bed and you need to think in your heart so that you before God can ponder your steps and words. And I wonder this morning if your life in any words or habits, both public or private, would be considered rebellion against God. David is urging you this morning to stop and think about what you're doing. Think about what you're doing. Sin will not satisfy you. The enemy's promises are bankrupt through and through. No idol ever did you any good, but the living God welcomes you to come from him, to, to him, to turn from your wickedness, to find life in Christ alone. You should look at your steps and ask, what am I doing? And that perhaps the Lord, in a display of His mercy and grace, would shatter some sort of delusion and awaken within you a sense of desire to pursue God. We should stop and ask, like David urges others around him, what exactly am I doing? When is the last time you pondered what you're living for? And why you do what you do? What motivates and incentivizes your words and actions? David wants to live for the glory of God. And God says of David, that's a man who's after my own heart. David would want us all to ponder in our hearts the state of things. And he says, stop and think about what you are doing. Maybe this verse, verse 4 has come to mind in the way you've remembered the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians. You see, Paul says to the Christian in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. You know where Paul gets that? Paul gets it from Psalm 4. He's quoting Psalm 4, verse 4, to the Ephesians, because what David called for his people to do around him wasn't something that expired when David's reign ended. Instead, they should repent and seek the Lord. And Paul is calling for the new, the new creation, the believer in Christ Jesus, to conduct herself, herself or himself in such a way that we turn from what is sin. Paul says, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. And we can take Paul's language there, and that can really help us with Psalms, because in Psalm 4, when he's telling people to be angry and don't sin, ponder in your heart what it is you're doing before God. When people don't take their heart before God with an utter seriousness, they will open opportunity for the evil one. The evil one whose designs and efforts toward us are for our discouragement, despair, and destruction. David wants them to worship God. We know this in verse 5. Psalm 4, 5, he says, Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. More evidence that we're dealing with some kind of call to repent from idolatry. From trusting in things that help us not. He says, offer right sacrifices. This means they should stop going to the temples of idols. And they should worship the living God where he was to be worshipped. Put your trust in the Lord means God is not simply saying through Psalm 4, hey, there's some external things that you need to like tweak and adjust. 
But you're, you know, just ignore your heart. Who's really going to know what's inside anyway? But God knows your heart. And David knows that these outward sacrifices should represent a true heart that's pursuing God. And if that sacrifice is offered, and this is a person who does not trust in God, that sacrifice can fool a lot of people, but God will never be fooled. It is foolish to imagine that we can try to engineer some kind of behavior modification on the outside without trusting in the Lord with our heart. What a wonderful exhortation this is in verse 5. Put your trust in the Lord. Well, that's just good news for us every day. There's not a day of our lives where we don't need to hear that. We need Psalm 4, verse 5, every day of our lives because we are tempted to hope in all manner of things. At the end of verse 5 here, put your trust in the Lord. This might be the climactic imperative for David's listeners who are hearing verses 2 to 5, David's address of them, his exhortation to them. Put your trust in the Lord. And the display of their worship is connected to what they're trusting in. Here's his confidence in verses 6 to 8. We've seen him hope in the Lord through prayer in verse 1. We've seen verses 2 to 5. He's addressed those around him. Look at his confidence in God in verses 6 to 8. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Now sometimes your translations will add quotation marks. It's the judgment of the translators and the Bible committees who seek to put faithful translations in our hands. And praise God for them. But in this case, I want to move the quotation mark that ends this, uh, this verse, I think it is more likely there are many who say, who will show us some good? End quote right there. And David responds, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. So that what he's quoting, these people around, the, the gist of their concern, their question, that that's all that represents their quote. And that the last part of the verse is David's response to them. So I'm going to interpret this verse accordingly. There are many who say, who will show us some good? That's not a statement of faith. That's a statement of skepticism. These many did not say, God will show us what is good. Yahweh is good. They didn't say that, did they? They will not confess what David knows to be true. They say, who will show us some good? The who there is probably not David. When you read interpreters who comment and explain this passage of the psalm, they are inclined to conclude the following. The who is some God that will do what they want. Who? Who will show us some good? This is not David they're looking for. It's like someone who goes shopping for a car. They go from dealership to dealership to dealership. And they've got a question. Who is going to give me the best deal? And that's the dealership that I'm going to go with. The question from the mini is more like that. They're looking for the best deal. What deity is going to give me what we want? Who's going to show us some good? And the rest of verse 6 is David's response to the words of the many. 
And it's a prayer to the Lord. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. That echoes the priestly blessing of number six, doesn't it? Asking for God to be gracious and merciful, to be a blessing and to grant peace. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And what's interesting here is David's implication is that God himself is what they need. Now, they might be convinced that, look, what's going on around it? What I need is for this to change and for this to get fixed and for this to be more and for this to be less and for me to be. And you can imagine someone who is convinced that they will be better once things around them finally level out. But David doesn't think that's true. David believes that what they need is an answer to this particular prayer that God himself would shine upon them. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, that what we need, and I mean the, the, with the metaphor of sight here, our hearts to behold the face and glory of God made known in the truth of his word. That in coming to read what is true and believe his words as he's made himself known. And ultimately in the works of Christ Jesus, his incarnate son. We would recognize that God himself is who we need. God is the answer to the skeptic's question. Even if they ask it from bad motives. God will use it for good. Who will show us some good? God alone who is good. They're looking for someone to show us good. God himself is the fountain of all goodness. He's the source of all life. They should be asking who is worthy of our worship and trust. David points his listeners to the living God. They should be asking who is the one with grace to cover our sin and idolatry. Who's the one who has power to bring new life to our hearts? The idols have done nothing for us. Who's the one who can pierce the darkness with his light and who rules all things by his sovereign power, not any image they've ever worshipped? They think they're asking the right question, but they're not. They should be asking questions like that. Who will show us some good? The only answer to that question is the true and living God, which the word of God proclaims. He is the great blessing of his people, pardon from sin, new life in Christ, eternal joy and glory before us in the age to come. There is nothing greater than knowing God. David tries to make this clear in verse 7. You, God, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. I think the reason he puts it this way is because a king was no doubt highly favored when the times were good for his people. If you have grain and wine abounding, people are happy. Vineyards are blossoming. The fields are fruitful. When grain and wine abound, the people would no doubt be grateful for their leader. Oh, we love our king. He's such a great king. Oh, look at the vineyards and look at the land. Their very positive disposition would no doubt even be meaningful to the king. It would be normal to feel more joy with their support. However... The deepest joy in David's heart must not depend on the favor of the people. Because what will David do when they don't favor him anymore? It could change when the amount of grain and wine changes. 
The desire for abundant grain and wine was a normal thing in the agricultural life of the ancient Near East because drought and famine could disrupt it so severely. Livelihoods can be put in such a distressful set of circumstances and the lack of grain and wine could motivate people to call out to gods that are no gods at all. So this psalmist, David says, you God have put more joy in my heart than I could ever get from their favor. When grain and wine are abounding, yes, things are good and they are good toward me, but that's not the deepest root of it for me. Comes from you, God. The psalmist has an inner joy. David experiences a kind of contentment and trust in God. You should think of grain and wine as representing the kind of gifts from God in this world. If the things of this life that look like blessing to you and gifts... When such things seem in short supply, I wonder what your heart is like toward God. Because these people whom David is talking about in verse 6, these people are willing to follow whatever seems to give them what they want. Whatever seems to supply the grain and the wine. Who's going to show us what's good? And in their pursuit of God, it fades when the grain and wine fade. And what that might reveal is that they didn't really love God They loved the grain and the wine. And it revealed the spiritual instability of their hearts. And that their hope and peace was connected to everything going well around them. God is greater than all His gifts combined. He is more satisfying than all earthly blessings put together. God is more glorious than all worldly comforts, health, money, and pleasures that you could put on one side of the scale. God is greater still. God Himself, as one writer put it, is the most satisfying good that we can imagine. David says there's greater joy in knowing God than having all the affirmation of all the people of Israel's kingdom. One writer puts it this way, learning to know God and receive Him and rejoice in Him is the end of all things. That is the end for which we have been made. End being used like the word purpose. It is the end or purpose ultimately of all things that we would know, rejoice in, be satisfied in God. This is why David says in verse 8, I can sleep at night. It's not always easy when there's distress pressuring in all around. We know what it's like to be so frustrated or concerned with something that we think, I used to sleep better than I do. I'm so worried about so many things. So my mind is just going constantly stressed about this or that. And David says, in peace, in peace. Oh God, give us this kind of peace. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. He's preparing to lie down and sleep in these circumstances. And I, and I love the language of morning and evening references in some way in these psalms. Because in chapter 3, he says in verse 5, I lay down and slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. It's as if he's entering into the day, thanking God, looking unto God. What's he doing at the end? Well, in chapter 4, verse 8, in peace, I'm going to lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You, you have in view, if you will, a person, whether it's morning and evening, 
orienting their thought to God, their hope in God, their trust in God. That doesn't mean these accusers have stopped accusing. Doesn't mean their circumstances around David have improved and once again grain and wine are everywhere. But it means that David knows God. And so even when certain things are lacking, God is unchanging. And He must be our hope. Our hope must be in the unchanging God. Grain and wine come and go. Inflation rises and falls. Economies ebb and flow. Improve and worsen. The people of God must not root their lives in what is unstable in the present age. God is unchanging in the refuge for His people. David knows that the idols will be no help. Look at one little word. The word alone. Do you see that in verse 8? You alone, O Lord. If others are hoping in other things that are not God, David knows what David needs and what they need comes from God alone. The true source of life and blessing for the people of God. Dear friend, I want you to know this morning, God welcomes you in Christ Jesus to Him. How long will you go on in rebellion against God? If your heart is pursuing things which are dishonoring to God, David would say this morning with a question and a plea, how long will you defy the living God? Repent and come to Christ. There is pardon for our sins. There is joy in knowing God. There are promises in His Word and God is faithful. Your idols will not die for your sins. But God alone, by His grace and mercy, has sent His only Son so that in Christ alone there would be a name that saves for all the nations of the world. The name of Jesus, who is the friend and Savior of sinners. Christ alone. Let's pray.